0: Welcome to another episode of Champion Hope. I'm your host, Lance Howard, where I help men become fully alive in the adventure of following God by becoming self-aware and assertive in all of life's journey. You can find out more at championhope.com, schedule and ask Lance anything, and learn more about our mastermind, the Champion's Circle. I believe it is our stewardship and our responsibility to be fully alive as men and all the places and all the adventures that God has us on. Today, my guest is Chris Field, a friend and founder of Mercy Project. You find out about Mercy Project at mercyproject.net. He has a new book out, A Billion Hours of Good, and How to Make a Difference at 14 Minutes at a Time. A Billion Hours of Good, Changing the World 14 Minutes at a Time. You'll wanna listen in uh, to this episode if you're struggling with finding your North Star, as Chris calls it. Uh, Finding your North Star is essential because as Chris discovered, uh, he was gaining weight, he was unfocused and depressed until he clarified his calling and moved in the direction that God was leading him. And that direction is Mercy Project. And specifically, to this date, he has rescued and reintegrated 181 child slaves in Ghana, Africa. Can you imagine clarifying your calling, clarifying your purpose and being so driven that the adventure that God is leading you on leads you to rescue and reintegrate 181 child slaves in Ghana, Africa. That's just a glimpse of what Chris is up to in the world and his inspirational storytelling and a billion hours of good, and our conversation will be helpful for you today as well. A few other things we talk about is telling the truth uh, is that you need people around you that will tell the truth and be kind, um, that are loving enough uh, that their ego is not attached as well. Uh, we need to line up opportunities, uh, and we line up opportunities by failing, and we need to realize that failing is in the same correlation, the same vein as faith. Uh, We need to get more comfortable with failing more frequently. And finally, uh, he asked this question of how can I be a better dad? I think that's a great question uh, that's on the cusp of Father's Day. And uh, today's episode is for men, for you, who are looking to clarify what God is up to in the world, how you can make a difference. At 14 minutes at a time. Did you know that the average executive is spending 23 hours a week in meetings? My guess is that's not your North Star or your desire. And so maybe this episode will help you uh, realign and confirm uh, how you are spending your time and how you can make a difference. Our excuses are constantly time and money. But the reality is that we live in abundance of time and money. On the flip side, as we discuss in the episode, too often we're living in fear and scarcity that we don't show up with our best gift and value to the world. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a treat to me and my reflection, and I hope it's a treat to you as well. You can find out more about Chris Phil at mercyproject.net. You can order his book, A Billion Hours of Good, Changing the World 14 Minutes at a Time. Peace, encourage to you today. Thank you for tuning in. Let's dive in. I'll cut and put a okay. little intro in the beginning. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much, Chris, for being here today. Uh, truly honored and humbled. I want to go back to my first experience with you and Mercy Project. I was serving in ministry out in Las Vegas, Nevada. And, you know, at that time, Mercy Project was a dream. And I remember you were doing some very tiny fundraiser. And I was like, well, this is, this is odd. Some guy is gonna do some fundraiser for this dream to go uh, help rescue uh, child slaves in Ghana, Africa, right? That's been 12, 13,
1: yeah, not quite that long. I went to Ghana the first trip ever, August of 2009, and then started okay. Mercy Project September of 2010. So okay. 10 and a half years ago.
0: Okay. So in that time, my uh, belief in you uh, is just magnified, right? Because I know you as a person. That was just an interaction on a screen. Yeah. Chris, you're you're like one of those few men that when people get to know you, um, and especially as, as many people have done, they cross the finish line there at Bryan college station. Uh, you just have this presence about you that you allow people to stand up a little bit taller. Uh, and I just thank you for that. Uh, how many, how many children have y'all rescued to this point?
1: Yeah. So mercy project has rescued and reintegrated 181 kids. Oh yeah. Back into their families. So,
0: wow. Wow. Yeah, it's mind blowing. So we're gonna, we're gonna dive in uh, to your new book, a billion hours of good. Um, But I just want to kind of kind of set the stage for the the creativity uh, that you have behind you. Um, That that first and only, excuse me, first and only marathon I've ever done. was with you guys. I did a half marathon as well. But as you as you round that last little corner, you know, you have all these signs. And at that point, there was 20 something, I think. Yeah. Uh, Just an overwhelming sense of emotion of all these kids that you've rescued. Um, Where, take us back. Where did the vision come from, uh, for Mercy Project? And, And, and here's why I ask, because so many people, and men in particular, seem like they're adrift, without a purpose but it, but it seems like once you found your purpose, you were locked and loaded and you knew what yours was to do.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this gets at some of that North star language that I talk about in the book. And that is, I think when a lot of us were younger, we had this real sense of, we felt like what mattered to us and we could name it, you know, even if it seemed silly looking back, we'd say like, Oh, I, you know, I loved baseball more than anything. I collected baseball cards and I knew every player and statistics or, you know, whatever that thing was, you know, dinosaurs or art or puzzles, whatever. And then I think somewhere along the way, we, we get so busy with life that we, we forget like what what it means to really care about something and the daily duties just stack up so much and, you know, I always ask the course that I teach at Texas A&M in the business school, I always ask my students, you know, the first class, I talk about North Star. And, you know, I say my experience is that a lot of people have one thing they would say is their North Star, but then our calendars and our credit card statements tell another story and i think for a lot of us that's how we feel it's like we have the thing we would say is most important to us and then we have the thing that we actually spend our time and money doing and and so you know for me i did a lot of inner city ministry when i was in college i directed a camp for inner city kids i worked at a boys and girls club and that was like i mean those are still to this day some of those meaningful you know best years of my life i was very much gifted in those ways. Like, I mean, I was hired to direct that camp when I was 19 years old, even though almost all the staff was older than me. And we had campers that were only like a year or two younger than me. And it was, I was way over my head in that job. It was definitely the first time that I had to to depend on God for something because it was like, oh my goodness, I cannot do this. I'd been able to get by on my personality and energy before that, but it was like, this is too much. I mean, this is crazy. And so I, I really loved that. And then I I graduated college, was going to be, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. thought I wanted to do like poverty law and worked really hard, did great on my LSAT, got a full scholarship to law school and a semester in, not even a semester in, I was like, no, this is not, this is not for me. Like this is, just, I don't enjoy this. I'm not interested in this material. And so I was a youth pastor. That was my degree was pastor. So I was a youth pastor for a couple of years. And then I was a pre preaching pastor for a couple of years. And I like to tell people that, and I people take it as a joke, but I'm actually being totally serious. I learned in that year and a half of preaching that I was a great preacher and a terrible pastor. And those are not the same thing. I mean, I was a great communicator on Sunday mornings, but the speed at which churches move was, I just couldn't do it. I mean, it was like, it went against everything in my personality. And so I was constantly fighting with the leadership and I felt bad for those guys too, because I mean, they didn't know what to do with me. It wasn't that my ideas were bad. It wasn't that I was doing anything wrong. It was just, they were some mature and wise enough to know the pace I wanted to go was not a pace the church could go you know and so uh, I I was probably mildly depressed to be honest I mean I was the only season of my life that I didn't run I gained weight I I kind of had to drag myself out of bed and it just like everything was just off and I was just kind of you know, trying to figure it out and still work hard and and honor the people that were in front of me. And in that season, I read a book about child trafficking and that book talked about kids in Ghana, Africa. And I felt in reading that book and we were pregnant with our first baby and we'd already decided we're going to name her Micah. And we'd been praying over my wife's belly that this little girl would be a woman of justice and mercy everywhere she went And when I read that book about those kids, I felt for the first time in a couple of years, what I felt when I did the inner city work. And so I Googled and called the author of that book. I didn't know her, found her phone number, asked her if I could go to Africa with her. Three months later, I went out on the world's largest man-made lake, met these kids, came back to the suburbs of Dallas where I was pastoring and we started raising money for Her organization, I mean, uh, you know, I was 26 years old. None of my friends had any money, but we all had time. So we did things like eight of us ran from Dallas to Houston, just taking turns in a relay, sleeping in the back of a van, eating fast food. We broke the Guinness world record for longest kickball game, played kickball for 50 hours in a row. You know, we did all this crazy stuff, raised a bunch of money. And in that journey, I went back to Ghana two more times in those nine months. And I realized that no one was really solving the problem sustainably, that it was it was a lot of what felt to me like good intentions, but not anything that was really going to end it permanently. And so I was faced with this crossroads. Do I say, well, I did more than most people, you know, and, and then just move on? Or do I launch you know, a, a nonprofit ministry to try to get at the root cause, even though I didn't know what the root cause was. And I didn't have any more experience and, and expertise than anybody else on less, probably less money, less, you know, less experience. I, I didn't, I hadn't done anything that would put me in that position, but, but I was willing to show up, you know, I was willing to show up and to advocate and to tell the story and to dig deep and to, to put myself out there on behalf of those kids. And obviously, you know, the rest is kind of history, people like you and thousands. And now at this point, tens of thousands of others, uh, the the story resonated with them. And and I had people come around me that could uh, help me figure out how to sustainably solve problems, business consultants and people that solve complex problems every day in America that, you know, were kind enough to amplify their knowledge into helping me solve this problem in Ghana. So that's, that's kind of the genesis. I
0: want to dive into two chapters of the book, but first, um, a question about that season and then even, even a more specific down to like this current season. Yeah. But what have you learned about yourself over that decade?
1: Goodness. I mean, I've definitely learned that I'm better at starting things than I am at maintaining them. So, you know, I think that the fact that I'm still doing Mercy Project 10 and a half years later is really a Mm -hmm. testament to how much I believe in the cause. And honestly, to a board that has really affirmed my Uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And instead of viewing that as a threat, Mm -hmm. they view that as an asset to Mercy Project. You know, that uh, I have my hands in several things, as you know, and, and my board is just really, I I think they saw in me that I was a starter more than a maintainer, but that Mercy Project was still so young when I would have probably naturally wanted to roll out that it it might have failed. Mm. And so the way to keep the organization most healthy was to let me scratch that starter itch on other ventures and things that would ultimately only reinforce Mercy Project. You know, like now the book, the speaking that I do all over the country. I mean, every speech, the story of Mercy Project's woven through that speech. I mean, it's not a sales pitch, For Mercy Project, but that's so much of who I am. And so when I'm standing in front of a thousand hospital CEOs, like I was last February, the last speech I gave right before COVID, I'm not asking them to support Mercy Project, but I'm using the story of Mercy Project to support the kind of response we need to have when we see people in pain. Mm. And ultimately, that's not a bad thing for Mercy Project, you know, for those people to hear. Um, what I what what I've do what I've done and what the what organization has done and so I think that's probably the number one thing is it's I'm not a I'm not a maintainer I find my joy and passion in starting things and I need to have good operational people around me uh, I, and I think the second thing is the, the what I would say is the most important is just like people people just matter so much. Like, you know, I am so grateful. Every leader you see, every visionary you see, every successful person you see, they would absolutely not be where they are if there weren't a 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 20, 50, 100,000 people that hadn't come alongside them way before... They had earned the right to, mm-hmm. to for people to come alongside them. And so, you know, I, I almost feel guilty sometimes, you know, because it's like I'm the one that gets to do the podcasts and write the books and stand on the stages. But that road was paved with so many people that believed in Mercy Project and Chris Field way before they should have. And, you know, I benefit. From that, you know, and Mercy Project benefits from that. And so the way I the way I try to honor those people is just by continuing to bless them, by continuing to affirm them, by continuing to speak courageous truths into their lives, and and when I can to to remind them that. I'm where I am in many ways because of their support, you know, and not to take that for granted or to, to grow too, too big for my britches, if I will, if you will. So I think that's the two things I've probably learned um, most along the way.
0: Oh, yeah. So in this, in this current season, and I'm going to dovetail into the, the watermelon chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, this idea of self-awareness, this idea of having people at your table that are telling you the truth. It's hard. It's difficult. And, and before I go further, um, the, the watermelon, right. The, the, the Vaseline, just, just tell us the quick, what, what this, what this is.
1: Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to go to the pool around the corner from my house. We had a a summer family pass. It was probably back then. It was probably like $99 or something for the whole family, unlimited swim. And we lived about a half mile, maybe three fourths of a mile from Thomas pool. And so my sister and I, we were old enough to be able to ride our bikes down there. And we would swim I'm pretty much every single day. We'd be at the pool from like one to four o'clock. But every summer on July 4th, they would have all these fun games at the pool. And one of them is that they would cover a watermelon in Vaseline. I mean, gobs of Vaseline. And then they would drop it in the bottom of the deep end. And all the kids would dive in at a time. And the winner was the person that could bring that watermelon, not just to the surface, but then get it out onto the Onto the side of the pool, and when I started writing the chapter about telling the truth, that it, that I remembered that story or that those July 4ths, and just how somehow in in our current culture, and I think especially in Christian culture, the truth has somehow become like that slippery watermelon that we feel like we can't quite grab onto it. It just it barely eludes us. We think we have it, then it's not there, and I think this is just like such at our demise. You know, I think that this culture of tiptoeing around, um, you know, and then I won't cut in front of what you're probably going to say, but, you know, the other part of this is most of us are either good at telling the truth or being kind, but few of us are good at both. Right, right. And so, you know, when, when some people hear this, they're going to think like, oh, I have no problem telling the truth. I'll tell people exactly what they need to hear. I'm like, yeah, that's not that's actually just as harmful. You know, like when people come on Facebook with machine gun words of truth, you know, where they're just mowing down everybody that doesn't agree with them as though any opinion contrary to theirs is, is you know, complete idiocy. And there's no way a reasonable person could ever think that I mean. That's just as harmful as not telling the truth. And so telling the truth well feels so elusive to us. And I think that's come at our own demise.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, so telling the truth is a, is a tricky and, and sticky, uh, thing. Sometimes people get ahead of themselves in, in guarantees or, um, false promises that maybe they got ahead of themselves a little bit, uh, But right, you have this watermelon and Vaseline on it, going down the deep end, I've played this game numerous times. How do you, how do you handle this fine tension of, of you get the watermelon, you drop it, you get the watermelon, you drop it of disappointment, right? Because there's a, there's an area of like, I want to speak the truth and I want to receive the truth, but I know if I go into this territory, I'm going to be disappointed. And disappointment hurts.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does, but not as bad as getting mowed down by something everybody around you saw coming and nobody told you, you know, and I think that's the first thing I would say is we have no right to go and speak the truth into others until we're willing to receive it about ourselves. So the first place I would start is finding those three, five, seven people around you that you love enough and that you know, love you enough that you'll actually listen to what they say. Cause I've had people tell me the truth before that I didn't think had invested in me enough to, to be able to tell that truth. And, And that's a sign of immaturity on my part. I'll admit that we should be willing to hear the truth from anybody who says it to us, but we all know that's not the way it really works. I mean, if, if somebody has not made that investment in us personally, and then they just come and chop us down, like we're not going to receive that in the same way we will. If it's somebody that has, ha, well, you know, the current thing now, everyone's saying is like, show your receipts, right? If, if somebody has the receipts of tending to our hearts for years and years, and we can't hear truth from them that we won't hear truth from anybody. I mean, God himself wouldn't be able to tell us the truth if we're not going to listen to the people right around us. And by the way, he might be using those people right around us to tell us the truth. So I think the first thing is, if we really care about this and we really want to go on this journey of self-reflection, even though it's super disappointing and can be painful, we have to go to some of those people that we know care about us and that do have the receipts. And we have to say like, Hey, you know, what are some of those blind spots in my life? Like when you're, you know, if you're being like brutally honest with me, I know I'm a good person. I know I'm a a good enough, good enough. That's what I would say. Most of us are good enough, good enough. Dad's good enough. Husband, good enough worker. It's like, that's fine. If that's the goal. But I think that's why we feel so empty is that that's, we, we know that's really not the goal. We feel like there has to be something more. And and so I think we have to go to those people and say, like, hey, I don't, I don't want to be good enough anymore. Like, where are those places where I really am failing as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a coworker? And, you know, and then we have to take those things. We're probably not going to be able to do them all. And so we have to lay them out against our North star and say, okay, like what matters the most to me? Maybe there's, maybe there's ways I could be a better employee and make my company more money and, and make, be more successful on this ladder, but it's going to come at the expense of something else. My health, my family, just my own, whatever. Right. Or maybe I need to invest more in my marriage or my children, but that's going to come at the expense of, of something else. You know, I mean, I'm very much in a season to be completely transparent where I'm burning the candle on both ends in several ways. And to this point, I haven't been willing to give anything up. Like I'm still running 50 miles a week and I'm still trying to be a great dad and I'm still running mercy project. And we're going through some transition at mercy project and I'm launching the book in five weeks and I'm, you know, got some other, consulting and help that I'm doing with some other businesses and like to this point I haven't been willing to give any of those you know things up but at some point you know the, we, the old you can't have your cake and eat it too if we're probably going to get four or five or seven truths that are uncomfortable and we're not going to be able to do them all at one time so we're going to have to prioritize those things and that's where having that north star is really so critical is like which of those things do we care the most about and so, yeah, man, I think that's the place to start is asking those people around us to tell us the truth. And here's the thing. They're probably not going to believe us at first when we say like, no, really, I want you to be honest because we don't do this very well. Like we just don't do this very well. You know, I, I think I'm not Catholic. But I think it's like the beautiful thing about confession is because there's this anonymity. You know, I feel like a devout Catholic has really gotten fairly comfortable with naming some of those worst parts of their heart in ways that like I've, to this day, I haven't done as an evangelical, somebody who grew up evangelical, you know? I mean, that was just never been a, a, a habit or a pattern in my life. And, you know, there was this fad of accountability partners, you know, at some point in high school and college, but that pretty much only revolved around sexual sin no other part of our lives, which sexual sin's probably important in, in high school and college, but it's no less important in my late thirties than it was when I was 20. That's for sure. And it's now joined by a host of other sort of more hidden things, you know, all kinds of gluttony, um, materialism, selfishness, pride, arrogance, greed. I mean, all of these things, you know? And And so, I mean, I just think, whatever we can do to create a culture of telling the truth with people we love and the freedom to truly lay ourselves bare in front of another human being and for that person to pull us in tighter instead of turning their back, I think is such a beautiful physical representation of the way God receives us in our worst moments. But so many of us have never experienced that in the flesh that we don't even really believe that it happens spiritually because how could God receive us in a way we don't even trust our best friend or our wife or our pastor to receive us, you know, I mean, so that's probably more than you bargained for, but that's all I have to say about that Forrest Gump style.
0: You opened up a can uh, so here so here we go
1: yeah
0: that's it uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too
1: yep
0: right Seasons, seasons come and seasons go but more often than not I hear people and men because that's who I serve well it's just a season
1: yeah
0: and then in 90s days well it's just a season no I'm like how many there, there's four seasons we, we've got to say no That's right. so if I'm gonna put a reminder in my phone Chris uh, for 90 days from now, knowing that, that you live by a different standard of beyond good enough, right? What is it that you will have said no to that allows you to go to the next level in 90 days?
1: Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. Man, good question. Just today, I had a call with somebody that is wanting me to partner with them on a venture that I know I could add value to. And there's, I mean, the whole time they were talking to me, my brain was like, no, 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 no. You know, like, there's no way, like there's no margin, there's no margin here. And so I think for me, it's taking the three or four things I have going and doing them with excellence. And, and I'll be honest, I can't I know a lot of the men list probably most of the men listening are not pastors they're not in ministry and so they're gonna this is gonna resonate with some of them maybe differently but I still struggle a lot with this sense of like, if I say no to this opportunity in this season, I might never get this chance again, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm actually, this, I consider myself a bit of a wordsmith. So I'm a little annoyed. I can't think of this. What's the phrase, Lance, when um, when you have this mentality of like, because you once didn't have, and you sort of, you know what I'm talking about?
0: I mean, I don't know if you're talking about the whole scarcity thing, right? Because if, Yes, it, it, I mean, that,
1: yeah, the scarcity mentality of like you feel like you're never, even though you now have plenty, you remember when you right, didn't, right. and so you're afraid to say no to the next thing because you think it could be gone right. at any moment. Because if right? you say
0: if you say no to this opportunity, it's like, well, will it come again in a year or two years from right. now? Yeah,
1: this could be this could be it, right? This yeah. Could be the last time anyone asked me to do something like this, right. and I I would like to say unequivocally that that. Scarcity mentality has maybe done more harm to the American man than than most any other thing outside of the spiritual realm. Um, That sense, when it comes to our working worlds, when it comes to saying yes to opportunities, when it comes to looking over our shoulders, knowing that we've had the conversation with our wives or our children, that we don't have capacity for more, and we don't want them to overhear us saying yes like that scarcity mentality is so crushing because we end up saying yes to so many things that do not give us life they do not make us better human beings they do not make us better fathers they do not make us better husbands they do not make us better men of faith they're just they're just another Notch on a belt that we don't even want to wear, no. and so it's like we're 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 adding feathers to a cap that sits in the closet and nobody sees. It's like <laughs> no one cares about that thing. You know that, right? Like no one cares. It's like when people joke about, like, you know, I I I don't want to wear this because I think I might have worn it last time I saw these people. It's like newsflash: those people don't care how you dress. I promise you, if you don't remember if you wore that the last time you were with them, they absolutely do not remember. But we've overvalued ourselves so much in some of these things that really matter the least. And that scarcity mentality just fuels that so hard. So I think for me, it would be, to go back to your question and not dance around it, it would be there's three or four things I'm doing right now that that I really believe in and that all accomplish an important goal I have in my life. And I will continue for the next three months and well beyond to have to say no to other really great opportunities, stuff that two, three years ago, I would have killed for a chance to have. I would have been like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Yes, yes, yes. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. But I have to remember the, the North star and remember why I've said yes to things I've said yes to. And instead of doing a bunch of stuff with mediocrity, do a few things really excellent. And, and, and just keep committing to that and asking like, am I doing this with excellence? We've kind of forgotten what it means to do something with excellence. I mean, we don't even know, you know, and then we're frustrated that our kids don't follow through on stuff. And it's like, of course <laughs> our kids don't follow through on stuff. They're, being raised by a generation of parents who doesn't follow who don't follow through on stuff. I mean, come on. So I think just really the the things that I'm doing right now is being committed that those are the things I want to be excellent at. And everything else, as great as an opportunity as it might be, as nice as the people might be, it's just politely declining and saying, you know, and this is what I like to say, and this is sincere for me. I'm in the middle of a couple really important projects right now. And I wouldn't be able to give this the time it deserves. And yeah. so thank you for thinking of me. And I hope we might have a chance to work together in the future, but for now, I need to, to maintain my commitment to these other projects. Yeah.
0: So so scarcity, saying no, uh, knowing, knowing your own value and worth that you're able to, to offer the world. I mean, this is one of the premises of your books is that yeah. our, our lack of confidence is limiting our ability to go out and offer something to the world. Totally. Um, And even more so, you you bring up with men. I mean, just I'm two hours removed from a scarcity moment myself of uh, a business project, opportunity, personal development stuff that I misspoke on the price. And and so Jessica and I are having a conversation about like, oh, it's double what I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah am am I worth it is the future of what I'm doing and up to worth this leadership opportunity yeah so it happens all the time and so yeah. on on this whole watermelon chapter still uh, people have on average over sixty two hundred thoughts a day yep yeah. uh, these these internal and external noises I call them uh, toxic uh, truths or toxic uh, yeah toxic truths and the transformational truths yeah um share with us like just practical ways, you know, from, from your book, from your heart that, that allow us to kind of examine, is this an internal truth or external truth? Or is this noise? Like, like how do I get back to that, that North star?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is we have to actually be honest about what our, our North star is. I mean, turn off our phones, turn off our computers, turn off the TV, Turn off the white noise. Like, actually, be quiet and be honest with ourselves about what matters the most to us. And, and then once we've done that discernment, open up our uh, bank statement and open up our planner and go back. You know, ninety days, six months, and ask: Do my activities support this as the most important thing to me? And you know, I like the way that I think it's James Clear, Atomic Habits. I haven't read the whole book, but I really like the, how he talked about your current weight is a lagging indicator of the last three months of what you chose to eat and exercise. Your current bank account balance is a lagging indicator of an amount of time. And I love that because it's like, Sometimes we act like life just happened to us. You know, it's like we wake up and we're like, what? (laughs) How is my bank account? This is crazy, people. I don't have any money in my bank account. Like, this is no, this has to change. It's like, you know, that bank account has almost nothing to do with today. I mean, completely disconnected from the realities of today. It has everything to do with hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions you've made. Over your lifetime. And so for us to act surprised that the power of those compounding decisions, which is the whole point of the billion hours of good, you know, 14 minutes a day, the power of compounding time over years and years and years and years, it works both ways. It either hurts us or it helps us. And, you know, if, if you wrote 150 words a day, which is a short email, it's a two paragraph email, you'd have a 50,000 word book at the end of a year. But most people can't even fathom writing a 50,000 word book, but every single person I know writes over 150 words a day. They're just not the right words. They're not writing 150 words with intention. They're just writing the 150 words reactively that that's right in front of them. And and the funny thing is so many of those emails we're responding to, we don't care anything about it. We're frustrated. We're annoyed. We could delete it or say, no, thank you politely. And it would have no effect on life. And we sit there and labor over a response, right? could have taken that same amount of time written about something we cared about and we felt passionate about. And in 365 days, we'd have a book. People say, well, I don't want to write a book. Like, Okay. Write about your own childhood to give something for your kids or grandkids to have, like write a book just for you, just for your own therapeutic mind, for your own heart, for your own spirit, you know? Um, so, you know, I think what I would say is, we've got to first be honest about what is that North star and then see if we're actually living into that North star. And then that's going to force us to make some tough changes, you know, and to say, okay, if I'm not where I want to be, what do I really need to do to change? And this is where the majority of people, they fall off. Like we do, we do what we've always done and we're such creatures of habits and comforts. And even when it's the wrong activity, If it's the activity we're comfortable with, we keep doing it. And so at some point, the pain of not doing what we really wanna be doing, or the pain of not being where we wanna be financially, or with our health, or with our marriage, eventually that has to be stronger than the pain of doing something new. And until it is, we won't change, you know, and until as long as we are valuing comforts over uh, purpose as long as we're valuing com- value and comfort over uh, meaningfulness you know over transformation over legacy then we're probably not going to do those hard things or else we would have already been doing them
0: so, so failure great segue uh, the, the pain of staying where we're at right yep. um, you know some people know my stories. Most people don't know my story, you know, failures like this incredibly difficult thing. Uh, especially when you, when you feel like in the moment you're walking by faith and, and granted, I think sometimes faith is walking by failure, right? Because that's how God grows us up. Um, uh, you can be feel, feeling like you're doing the right thing. percent. Uh, but in that, in, in suffering and in the pain, God grows us up but, but many times what you're referring to like staying in that place of comfort. Yep. It's our North American culture, right? Uh, So, so how do we as individuals, humans, men, husbands, wives live with courage, right? Because if we're living with courage, we're living from our whole heart. And you mentioned it in the, in the book on, on the chapter about failure. Yep. Is that we're ultimately like pursuing the wrong goal. Uh, because many of our, our goals, frankly, don't inspire us. Right. So so share on possibly like a like a super recent failure, um, but also just just kind of speak into that that place as well of, of how failing forward helps us actually to, to continue to grow.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I told you before we started the actual formal part of this podcast, you know, uh, my, I had a chance to sell a bunch of copies of my book to a, to a school district that was going to potentially buy one for every one of their teachers and staff. This was a huge school district. I mean, it would have been huge, huge opportunity for me in this book. And they, they declined, you know, they, they, they said, no, thanks. And I was, you know, super bombed first and then then frustrated, then annoyed, you know, all the little continuum. And then I was just like reminded, like, I always want to take those shots. I mean, I always, it was a stretch to think that they were going to buy 2000 copies of this book for me, you know, but I always want to be the guy that takes those shots and that 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 lines up those opportunities and that that steps out there in, in faith and in courage, not knowing what the response is going to be. And I I would say, and I say it in the book, if you haven't failed recently, either you're not doing hard enough things, you're basically sandbagging, or you don't actually know what failure is <laughs> because you actually probably have failed. And you just don't realize it because you're just not being self-reflective enough. So, you know, the, I all, if I'm not failing a couple of times a month, then I'm not trying stuff that's hard enough for me. You know, I talk in the book about I, I've took piano lessons for about oh, two, two years. And I mean, I couldn't read a, a note of music when I started. When, when I dated my wife in high school, I couldn't even sing the melody of, Songs And this is a guy that grew up in Church of Christ where people were singing four-part harmony all around me. And I don't know what I was doing all those years, but I'm sorry for the people that sat around me in church because, I mean, I was literally 18 years old and my wife, who has a beautiful angelic voice, would sit there next to me on the swing, porch swing on her parents' front porch when we were dating, and she'd literally sing the melody until I could hear in my ear, like that I was singing with her, you know? And, and so carry that into adulthood. where like, I'm fine with the melody now, but anything beyond that is a stretch. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take piano. Like I'm going to learn how to play piano. And I found this piano teacher and she's like, I don't have any adult students. I don't really do adults. Adults don't stick to it. I'm like, Hey, you got the right guy. Like, let's do this. So she's like, you know, on Tuesdays working with my Nine-year-old daughter, and on Fridays working with me, you know, and but we're doing the same stuff, and you know now uh, I I can play most of Fur Elise, you know Beethoven's famous uh, song. The first part of Fur Elise, full disclosure, that everybody knows is a, a bit easier, quite a bit easier than the middle parts, which nobody knows. I don't I don't really know the middle parts, but the first part I'm very good at. But you know, it took me two two years two and a half years to learn that. And I did that, did piano partly because I think it's really, really good for us to do hard things and for us to do things that don't come easily and for us to do things that we are gonna fail in because I think it makes us less scared of failing. And if you look at some of the absolute, just most innovative, creative people in the world, they could not care less about failing. like. Elon Musk on a on a list of 20 of his fears failing at small one off projects is nowhere. Now he has he's got other issues, right? Don't get me wrong. He's got his everybody's got their stuff. But he would have no problem if he tries something, that fails. He's that doesn't even like cross his mind of like, what? Like, you know, I, I don't why are we still talking about this thing? Like, yeah, it didn't work. Like, on to the next seven things. Let's go. Like, this is how life goes. And so. I just think we have to try to fail. And so my advice is for everyone listening would be like, really be honest with yourself. If you haven't failed in the last 30, 60, 90 days, then you're probably sandbagging and you're not doing stuff that's hard enough or you're not being honest about what constitutes a failure. Cause I bet if you ask your wife, she probably tell you something you had failed at if she feels like you'll receive it from her, you know? Or if you sit or down probably, and ask you, Probably
0: in the last eight hours or two exactly, hours.
1: Eight minutes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, Or if you sit down and ask your kids, Hey, how how could I be a better dad? You know, I really want to be a better dad as, as you understand me, as you understand our relationship, how can I be a better dad for you? Like what, where, what do I do that's not really helpful to you or that doesn't make you feel safe?
0: Thanks again, Chris field for your time today. You can find out more about Chris field at mercyproject.net, you can get his book where books are sold, A Billion Hours of Good, Changing the World, 14 minutes at a time. Did you hear in the podcast that we have 6,200 thoughts a day? Minimum. Our brains are nonstop and we live in an anxious culture. Too many times we have this anxiety that paralyzes us from not doing anything. and So so thanks again, Chris, for challenging our assumptions and how we can just truly begin to make a difference by showing up with 14 minutes a day. But my guess is, is that you're going to have to choose to say no. More specifically, what is that adventure that you need to say yes to today? It's the simple things of life the 14 minutes that changed the world. So what do you need to say yes to? And how do you begin to say no to more of the noise around us so that we can be difference makers and be fully alive in the adventure of following God? I'm Lance Howard. You can find more at championhope.com. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, a champion on the outside is built with hope on the inside.